0: Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I pray that you'd shake up a lot of lives tonight concerning the peoples of the world and shake up churches that perhaps have been disoriented in regard to this priority of yours. And I pray that some in this room who are wondering why the roots of their lives for the last months have been loosened and would find out tonight. And I pray that stories would be told in the decades to come that you transformed churches with regard to the finishing of the Great Commission and drew some people from being senders to goers, and so that and a lot more now that I can't even anticipate, I ask you to do for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray, amen. So just to say the title again, why the glory of God is at stake in making people, peoples, people plural. There are huge segments of the English-speaking world for whom the pluralization of the word people would be very strange. It would sound to them like sheeps and mooses because it's not part of their experience. And if you're one of those I'm here to change that. And if you're one of those it's very likely that you're Missiology is defective, and probably your vision for why God created the universe is defective if the word peoples is foreign to your vocabulary. If you're not at home with the word peoples, if you don't use it regularly, then probably you're defective at serious levels of your thinking and your biblical understanding of why God made the world Now, my own pilgrimage to a a biblical understanding of God's global purpose for peoples was slow in coming. I was trying to think as I prepared this, when I began to use the word peoples, I can't remember using it before I was 34, probably did. But I have no recollection. It certainly played no determinative role in my thinking. And, and then after I settled on that fact that it was in my first two or three years as a pastor at 34 and 35 that I began to use it, I asked why. Uh, I grew up in a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church in a Christian family and can never remember that term being used, peoples. Why was that? And I thought of two reasons. There are more, I'm sure, but these are both very interesting. Reason number one, I grew up on the King James Bible. Now, so did a lot of you. And some of you are still hung up on the King James Bible. (laughs) But here's the facts in regard to peoples. The term peoples occurs in the King James Bible twice. In Revelation chapter 10, verse 11, and in chapter 17, verse 15. Verse 11, chapter 10, and I was told you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations, and languages and kings. Chapter 17, the waters are peoples, and multitudes and nations and languages and that's it the term peoples in the king james bible never occurs in the old testament in the esv peoples occurs in the old testament 235 times it occurs in the niv 216 times and it occurs in the i mean in the uh, nasb and it occurs in the esv 229 times every place I just discovered all this last week and trying to understand why I was defective in my understanding of, of biblical missiology for all those years. I, uh, every, 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 you know, pull, pull it up on your logos or your accordance or whatever you use and um, you'll find that every place where the plural peoples occurs in the ESV, you'll either have in the King James people or Gentiles. So the word people was not taken to mean multiple ethnicities, but plural individuals. That's very, very misleading. So that's what you've got to deal with when you're working with the King James, is that kind of misleading. Now, I have no idea why, and I'm happy to be taught here, why the translators would do that since they know, we know there's two of them in Revelation, we know they know the word exists. Except you might have had a team of translators on the new and a different team of translators on the old, and they didn't talk to each other. That's a possibility. That does happen in in Bible translation. So um, my first guess as to why um, I I never used the term, foreign to me is that the church I grew up in and my parents and myself never saw the word in the Bible. I just missed it in Revelation the two times it was used, and it wasn't used in the Old Testament where it occurs hundreds of times, and so I was misled. The Hebrew, as you know, has a singular word, am, for people, and a plural word, amim, for people. So the translation is good to have peoples. We need it. Laos and laoi in Greek, people and peoples. They're all over the Bible. And so this is not an English phenomenon. Those distinctions between plural people and plural peoples is Hebrew and Greek based. So that's my first effort at a self-understanding. Here's my second one. Um, Ralph Winter who was the most influential missionary theorist statesman in my life and probably the most influential missionary spokesman in the latter half of the 20th century, hadn't yet begun to make any noise about this when I was young. And uh, even though I had him for a class in 1970, uh, yeah, probably 1970, he wasn't talking this way. The US Center for World Mission, which he founded, and the bell that he rang in Lausanne, Switzerland in 1974, he hadn't rung yet. And you may not know, given the way we are today in the missionary world, it's totally different because of Ralph Winter than it was 50 years ago. I grew up perhaps you did, maybe you're still there, only talking in terms of unreached fields. This is a missionary field. There aren't any churches there, so we need missionaries in this field. That's the language I grew up on. Nobody talks that way today. Everybody talks about unreached peoples. All the mission agencies in the world use terms like unreached or unengaged peoples. That's almost entirely owing to Ralph Winter and the Bible being rediscovered. In 1974, we I was in Germany doing my doctoral work in Munich, so it's just down the road, and my dad went to the conference in 1974, the first Lausanne Missionary Congress, and we were all congratulating ourselves that the Christian movement had penetrated all the countries of the world. And then Ralph Winter spoke and popped that, popped that bubble totally. And he talked about why it is that we're congratulating ourselves on something that the Bible doesn't even talk about. Here's what he said. Why is this fact not more widely known that four out of five non-Christians are still cut off from the gospel because of barriers that are cultural and linguistic, not geographic? Why is this fact not more widely known? I'm afraid that all of our exultation about the fact that every country of the world has been penetrated has allowed many to suppose that every culture has now been penetrated. This misunderstanding is a malady so widespread that it deserves a special name. Let us call it people blindness, that is blindness to the existence of separate peoples within countries a blindness i might add which seems more prevalent in the us and among us missionaries than anywhere else it took me then about 10 years so 74 to roughly 82 83 84 for this to trickle down into my thick skull that this is massive and it's massive not simply missiologically but theologically. It's massive for the glory of God. It's massive for why God created the universe. It's just huge, and I had missed it. The Joshua Project today, go online, type in joshuaproject.org, says there are 16,804 people groups in the world. Now, if you go to IMB, if you go to uh, the, the mission Um, team at Gordon College and Seminary, you're going to get different numbers ranging from about 12,000 to 16,000. And the reason is for counting distinctions. Like if some of them count a people uh, as one, even though they have different expressions in different countries with slightly different dialects or cultures, and those count as one, others count as three, and so that's why you get different Numbers And so the numbers are always moving around. Of those 16,804 people groups in the world defined ethno-linguistically, cultural distinctives, language distinctives, 7,289 are classified as unreached. And the technical definition when they talk like that is that fewer than 2% are evangelical. And they estimate that 2% is about what it takes for them to then get on with the business of evangelism inside the culture so that you don't need foreign missionaries anymore for the church to catch on and spread. And that's kind of the flashpoint of reached. Whether that's completely accurate, it's good to make an effort at what your definitions are. Of those 7,289 unreached peoples, 3,167 are classified uh, at the IMB Center, International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Church, which carries on the most cutting-edge research. 3,167 are unengaged. Now, that's the number that should most burden us. Unengaged means... Nobody's even targeting them with a plan yet. 3,167 peoples, and we'll get to whether this is a biblical concept or not in a minute, peoples, no missionaries on the ground, no Christians on the ground, no plan in any agency to get Christians on the ground so that they could ever hear Nate Wilson talk about living by dying. I'm sitting there thinking, I like this. I like to listen to him. I could sit and listen to him all night. No, they can't. They can't. And I'm, I'm, I'm here just to make you feel that. If, if that doesn't bother you, that you get to hear Nate Wilson, and they can't, can't, can't then you're defective. You're a defective Christian. Defective in your understanding of the glory of God and why he made the universe. If your church isn't burdened for the unreached peoples, it's defective. One of my callings, I believe, is to awaken churches to that. An encouraging number. Of the unengaged people's over 100,000 population, it's only 401. Not to give the impression that those who have fewer than 100,000 don't matter, but my the progress that has been made. In fact, I consider myself living in a stunning period in history between 74 and and 2013, where this discovery, rediscovery of peoples has been made so that the entire missionary enterprise is doing the research necessary, mobilizing the young people necessary, pressing with all our might, get to the peoples, get it done. I'm part of a little group that's putting on a conference called CROSS. At the end of the year, just because we're so burdened that the reformed church, just those who, who share this massive, glorious vision of how God saves sinners sovereignly, are on the cutting edge of making this happen with young people. So that nobody can ever say, oh, those reformed people, they don't even believe in missions. Baloney, we don't believe in missions. All the, all the great movers and shakers of the modern missionary movement were reformed. So, and and the reason for that, and that's what this talk is about, is because it flows directly from the purposes of God to glorify himself in the world among all the ethnicities that exist, and if he doesn't get them, his glory is not going to shine as brightly as he means it to shine. And if reformed people don't care about that, we're not reformed. We're not what we ought to be. I, I woke up to... Duh, in 1983, along with Tom Steller, my associate, that I had not preached at our mission conference for two years, and we both looked at each other in 1983, in the fall of 1983, and we said, we love the glory of God. That's what we're about here. God-centeredness, that's what we're about here. Magnifying Christ and God in everything. And We don't ever talk about missions. Absolutely contradictory. Tom wept half the night listening to a song by John Michael Talbot about the nations while God was stirring me up in my sermon series on desiring God. And chapter 9 became missions, the battle cry of Christian hedonism. And my life was turned around until 10 years later. There's a book about it all. It was a heady days. So I thank God for that decade of discovery. So I am um, eager to make this point that the glory of God hangs on the pluralization of the word people, and that's what we're we're talking about. So here's my thesis point. God created the world to receive glad-hearted worship From the entire panorama of peoples that he himself brought into being for this purpose and the glory that he means to have from the peoples is directly related to their corporate diversity of language and culture as well as location. So he created the world to be glorified in the glad-hearted worship of all the peoples and the allness of it is constitutive of the glory that redounds to his greatness. That's my, my thesis. I think that among all the other focuses of your church, the focus of Reaching with the gospel of the glory of Christ, the unreached peoples should be a big one, a big focus, along with all the other good focuses. This one of the biggest challenges of a pastor's life. Pastors are burdened, burdened, burdened. You got this divorce and that death and this kid acting out, and here comes John Piper saying, take on the world. So I've been trying to say it in ways that are burden-lifting for a long time and boldness-producing, energy-giving, so that it doesn't deplete you from the others. It makes sense out of the others, gives global scope to the others. I spent years trying to figure out what's the relationship between domestic ministries, that's everything at home, and frontier, let's use that word, frontier missions. The unreached peoples, what's the relationship between those two? And that's what you have to figure out. I've written lots to try to help, but we all need to have a cluster of people. I think every pastor should pray, God, give give me a cluster of people who consider it their passion to wave this flag incessantly. They're just waving this flag. There they are. Those are the frontier mission crazies over there. And they're waving their flag. And they mean to wave it in this church every chance they get. And the pastor likes them. That's what I think you want to happen. Because you've got to have a, a pro-life team doing the same thing. Got to have a homeless team doing the same thing. Gotta have a a racial harmony, racial diversity piece on the local scene doing the same thing and a hundred other special interest groups where somebody's got a burden given by God to kill this abortion thing. You're not going to put them down. You're going to export them to Iraq because there's no pro-life effort among the unreached peoples for Jesus' sake. That's how you talk. That's how you talk to lift the burden of their not going. You exist here to get people ready to do that there. You people who are going there, you don't feel superior because all you're doing is exporting what's important to do here. So you wanted to do it there, make everything possible there. We love here. You got to do this, Pastor. You can do this. It's a thrilling calling to awaken people to that vision. So here's here's the thesis again. God created the world that he might be glorified, that is, worshipped with glad-hearted worship. There isn't any other kind. Come back to that. Glad-hearted worship by a redeemed people from all the peoples of the world. That's the more careful statement. Let me say it again. God created the world to be glorified in glad-hearted worship by a redeemed people among all the unreached peoples of the world. And what I've learned over the years is that in leading people into this joy, it is better to talk about the greatness of God than the details of missions. I've talked to so many pastors. How do we get our people fired up for foreign missions? I said, well, stop talking about it. You're just making it sound like another thing to do. Get into God. Get in there. Because God did this. God means to do this. And so get these people so up there, blown away by the global purposes of a glorious, all-able God that, well, of course, we're going to get the nations. That, that's the way to fire up the people rather than constant details about this and that missiological phenomenon that's, that's out there. At least that's been my experience, and it's... it's happened. I've seen it happen in conferences, and I've seen it happen at our, our church. I don't think people at Bethlehem view uh, missions as an onerous thing, but as the outgrowth of the most thrilling vision of God there is. So you want boldness awakened, not burdens created. State the thesis again. Going to get it. God created the world to magnify his glory in the glad-hearted worship of a redeemed, blood-bought people from all the peoples of the world. So I'm going to take that a piece at a time now. Genesis 127, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So they're his image. And the reason you make images of yourself is to draw attention to yourself. If you put an image of yourself up in the town square, you mean for people to think about you. And he puts 7 billion of them on the planet. So this is clearly very God-centered, right? God is into God totally. He means for himself to be manifest everywhere. That's what images do. They image God. If they rebel and try not to, well, they're going to pay. But the reason they were made is to demonstrate how God is, how glorious God is. And then you read, bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone whom I created for my glory. And then you read Isaiah 48, 9 to 11 about the Patience of God with Israel. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For my name's sake and for the sake of my praise, I restrain it. And then you have Jesus come into the world. I'm skipping about 100 texts at that point. Most of them are on pages 35 to 40 in the book. Here comes Jesus to do it. He's going to do the decisive Work of purchasing the peoples. Now, why did he come? On the night before he gave his all, this is what he said in John 12 Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name then a voice came from heaven I have glorified it and I will glorify it again and then a few hours later maybe minutes I don't know how long it took to get from chapter 12 to chapter 17 he prayed to his father father the hour has come glorify your son that the son may glorify you. That's why I've come. This is decisive. This is the center of history. This is why he made the universe. Then we get our sins forgiven because of what he did, and we say things like, I, or God says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. I will not remember your sins. For your own namesake, O Lord, pardon my guilt. And then you get Paul saying, do everything. Do everything to the glory of God. That's why the son came to die. That's why your sins are forgiven, to make God look glorious and magnificent. Now get on eating and drinking for his namesake, for his glory. Make him look great. Don't make food look great. Make him look great in the way you treat food. And then he comes again second coming why they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the lord from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed why is he coming back he's coming back to be glorified he's coming back to be marveled at that's why he's coming that's why he came the first time why he's coming the second time, it's why God created the universe, it's why he forgave your sins, So I give gave you pizza and Diet Coke. This is why he does everything he does is so that you can make him look great. God is into making statues of himself and replicas of himself and pointers to himself everywhere. That's why the universe exists and that's why redemption happens in Christ so that God will get glory from a redeemed people. A blood bought people. Then the eternal state looks like this John 17, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that I have given you, that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. That's the highest prayer I think Jesus could pray for me. Father, let John Piper see me forever. Way better than he does now with ever-growing pleasure. Or Habakkuk 2.14. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Therefore, to that end is a world full of worshipers to that end jesus came representing the father's search for worshipers right john 4 23. the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth for the father is seeking seeking such people to worship him. God is on a worship recruitment crusade, seeking worshipers among all the peoples of the world, among women who've been married five times, and others. I'm I'm looking for people. I want want worshipers. That's why I made the world. That's why Jesus came. That's why the Holy Spirit fell. That's why I gave the mission to the church. I am after worshipers in the world. Now, my definition of worship, when I say that God is is looking for worship, worship to happen or that he created the world in order that he might be glorified in the glad-hearted worship of a blood-bought people. I don't mean worship services. I gave my whole life to worship services and believe in them with all my heart. Unique things and glorious things happen in the gathered people of God, in the worship of God. I do not mean services. That's way too limited to what God means by worship and what I mean by worship. What I mean by worship is that God is being treasured by our hearts gladly above all things. That's worship. And the words and the feelings and the actions that display that worth, that treasure, that's part of it too. But the essence of worship is right here. These other things, these other things, saying things, liturgy, doing things, going to the prison, those aren't worship unless this is happening. In vain do you worship me. Lips, lips, lips. No, this, this is the heart of worship. And what is it? It is a treasuring of God above all things. embrace of God as worthy such that it satisfies your soul like a treasure hidden in a field for which you sell everything you have. That's worship. God created the universe to be glorified in the glad-hearted treasuring of God among all the peoples of the world. And out from that treasuring will come some services and service of every kind imaginable, which will also point to his infinite worth, if they come from that kind of heart and not otherwise. So the key, this is what I talked about last night, the key to God not being an egomaniac In saying, I'm going to have worshipers. I need worshipers, 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 worshipers. The key to his not being an egomaniac is that worship is satisfying the soul with God. And therefore, when he seeks to be worshiped, he seeks your satisfaction to its uttermost. And therefore, glad-hearted worship Is the goal for the glory of God. God gets the glory, we get the joy, or as I love to say, God is magnified in the soul that is satisfied in God, which means missions, is a summoning of the nations to be glad in God. That's a quote from the Bible. I didn't make that up out of my Christian hedonist theology. Psalm 67, 3. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. That's the title of the book. The heart of my theology. Go tell them. Recruit joy. Recruit happiness from the nations. Tell them, show them the gospel. Show them this infinitely admirable God and tell them there's no higher joy than admiration of what is supremely admirable. Especially when he loved you enough to send his son to have you for himself. Tell them, among all the peoples of the world, recruit joy. That's what we're after. We have the best news in all the world. Why wouldn't we want to tell every people group to be a part of this joy? Ho, everyone who... Come to the waters. That's what you say, right? You land in an unreached people. You learn the language. You cross the culture. Oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the water. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why would you spend your money on that which is not bread and labor for that which does not satisfy? Hearken diligently to me and eat what is good and God will make with you an everlasting covenant of David. I'd love to unpack that for for the next half hour. What does it mean to be in the Davidic covenant? This is our mission to recruit glad-hearted worshipers from all the people. So my book begins, it's the only line in the book anybody knows, Missions is not the most important thing in the world. It's not the ultimate goal of the world. Worship is the ultimate goal of the world. Missions exist because worship doesn't. And so if you were worshiping, as Nate spoke, they should have that opportunity to be glad in that news. Revel in those thoughts The rest of the main point, I've got one more piece of it. The rest of the main point went like this. So God created the world that he might be, uh, receive glad-hearted worship from a blood-bought people. And then the last part is among all the peoples of the world. So two pieces there we haven't said much about. Blood-bought and peoples when I say that God created the world to be glorified I don't mean generically glorified I mean glorified ultimately for his grace shown in Jesus and I say that because of Paul's logic in Ephesians 1 5 and 6 about you were predestined to be adopted through Christ unto the praise of the glory of His grace. So grace, evidently, is the capstone of glory because glory is God's fullness of all perfections. And when it spills over for our enjoyment, we call it grace. Because nobody deserves that spillover. So the spillover is a manifestation of the fullness. And as it washes over us with, with in your presence is fullness of joy and in your right hand are pleasures forevermore, we praise the glory of the grace, which is the spillover of the fullness of glory. So I, I mean very specifically God created the universe for the praise of the grace bought by the blood of Jesus for sinners Jesus is the center of the reason for existence the center of the universe and here's one of the reasons you know that revelation thirteen eight: all who dwell on earth will worship the beast everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. So there's a book before the world existed. There's a book, and it has a name. It's called the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain before there was a fall, which means it's all planned. which means the slaughter. That's what the word slain means. The slaughter of the Son of God was the plan. And they titled a book after it before the world was made. So my, my, my blood-bought condition was the plan or Tim, 2 Timothy 1.9, he saved us, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ before the ages began. I, in God's sight, received Undeserved, blood bought grace before the ages began. So, what's it all about, Alfie? <laughs> it, it's all about Christ magnifying grace, redeeming a people for himself so that God would have a, a redeemed, praising people from glad hearted worshippers that's what the universe is is for so state it again god created the world that he might be glorified in the glad-hearted worship of a redeemed blood-bought people from all the peoples of the world So he he died and redeemed a people, not simply that we would, in missions, declare his glory psalm ninety six three Declare his glory among the nations." That's just a great title for a missions conference. Declare his glory among the peoples of the world, but it also says, Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. So that when Christ bought us, he removed every obstacle to our enjoyment of a holy God without being incinerated. And that's what we commend to the nations now. Last piece from all the nations, from all the peoples of the world. So main point, God created the universe to be glorified, magnified, from a glad-hearted, worshiping, blood-bought people gathered, now, last point, from all the peoples of the world. Revelation 5, 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slaughtered. And by your blood you ransomed A people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Christ died not simply to ransom sinners but to ransom a particular group of sinners from every people group on the planet. If you don't have an S on the end of the object of redemption, you miss it. And I didn't have an S for 34 years. I just thought he died to save a lot of individuals. The death of Christ did not relate to the peoples in my mind. Missions was go get some more individuals saved. God envision. This is why, by the way, the businessman argument who's thinking in terms of dollars and pay off for his books is, look, it costs a lot of money to take somebody over to Japan, not having a lot of fruit there, got a lot of unbelievers down where I work, just forget that and do it this. That just is a totally compelling argument without peoples. If God died to have Japanese in the kingdom, and all the other 16,000 people groups, that argument doesn't work anymore. There's a lot of people who think that way. If he died to have a people, then we say to every young person or finisher like me who ventures into the unreached peoples of the world, We say the encouraging words of Acts 18.10. Jesus talking to Paul. Do not be afraid. Go on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you. For I have many people in this city. I died for them. Go find them. All you do is wave my flag. My sheep know my voice. Speak it. Gather the sons of God from all the peoples of the world. I have bought them. They will come. Go. You cannot fail. God was planning from the beginning to have. The nations. Abraham, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's a pretty small category. All of them. The Old Testament is strewn with exhortations. Clap your hands, all oh peoples. Bless our God, O oh peoples. Ascribe to the Lord, O oh families of the peoples. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. Praise the Lord, all nations, extol him, all peoples. So exhortations to the peoples abound. So do promises for the people. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you. Peoples gathered together in kingdoms to worship the Lord, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich foods. These I will bring from all the holy to all the holy mountain and make for them a joyful house of prayer. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all peoples. So promises abound for the peoples in the Old Testament. Not just for individuals, for for peoples or prayers for the peoples. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. May all the kings fall down and all nations serve him. May his name endure forever. All nations will call him blessed. And not only prayers and exhortations and promises, but praises. The the psalmist praises God among the peoples. For this I will praise you, O God, among the nations. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations, which is why Jesus said, go make disciples of all the nations. And for 30 plus years, I thought that meant Germany, Switzerland, America, Argentina, China. And it doesn't at all mean that. Panta ethne, ethne means ethnic entities. 16,000 of them. Barbarian, Scythian, Roman, Greek, Jewish. They didn't know many of them in those days, but they named the ones they knew. Why is this essential? And I'm, I'm on the glide path here. The title of the message is, Why is it essential to the glory of God that they, they come from all the peoples? And our our mission as a church, as churches, must carry this and wave this flag to finish this, get to the peoples. Why? I've got four quick reasons for why they are essential to the glory of God. Number one, there is a beauty and a power of praise that comes from unity and diversity that is greater than coming from unity alone. Choirs know this, right? There is something powerful about unison, but whoa, when it breaks into parts, something. And there is greatness in having a Jewish people, but oh, the choir of 16,000 cultures. That's number one. Number two, the fame and the greatness and the worth of an object of beauty increases in proportion to the diversity of those who recognize its beauty. For example, if you have a little, if you have a piece of art And a little cluster of artists who all think the same, love it. It's great. And nobody else does. It's probably not great. But the wider that sense of greatness spreads, and the more diversity of people recognize its greatness, you're on to something really deep. You're onto something really deep. And Jesus has the sorts of depths of beauty and greatness that he will be recognized for what he is among all the peoples. And nobody else is gonna be in that category. Third reason that I think diversity of worship is essential to the glory of God. The strength and the wisdom and love of a leader is magnified in proportion to the diversity of people he can inspire to follow him. So if you're a leader and you've got 5,000 people following you and they all look just like you, no great leadership there. But if that following becomes increasingly diverse from all kinds of languages, all kinds of cultures, recognizing in you somebody worthy of following, you're pretty great. And Jesus will be the leader who is recognized as worth following by all the peoples of the world. And finally, number four, and this one gets right to the heart of everything by focusing on having all the peoples for himself, not just two-thirds of them, not just 7,000, but all of them, he is saying he is undercutting all ethnocentric pride, and he is putting free grace on magnificent display because of the diversity. Listen to Paul, one of the most profound statements on the relationship between justification by faith alone, apart from works, and the ethnicities of the world. Romans 3, 28 to 30. We hold that no one is justified. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? What's the logic there? Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the nations, of the peoples? Yes, of the peoples also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. What in the world does that mean? including every ethnicity, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, is one of God's ways of killing ethnocentric self-reliance, which we think might possibly commend us, higher to God than these poor blokes. And he just cuts it to pieces with the doctrine of justification by faith. And by saying, I will have all the peoples for myself because they're all common on the same basis. There will be no ethnocentric pride here. Nobody will be able to boast in their race or their language or their culture. None of it. It's all gone. What has become of boasting? It is excluded because my son is the righteousness that will be magnified in this worshiping people. So, concluding sentence. Making people plural and making unreached peoples a priority in the church clarifies the doctrine of justification by faith alone, exalts Christ as the only ground of global acceptance, humbles us and strips us of all ethnocentric pride and makes the glory of grace more clear and more precious than anything else could. So I think getting the S on the end of this word is massive. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your mercy to this white, middle-class, selfish, sinful preacher. And I pray, oh God, for your grace to, to fall in such a way that every person here, instead of feeling burdened by, oh, another task, would feel, oh my, what a God, what a vision. What a hope, what a certainty. This gospel will be preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. It's going to happen. Oh, that I might have a little part in it as a sender or a goer. Work that, I pray, in all the churches here and and all all the worshipers here, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Thank you, Pastor John, and and not just thanks for stopping by, thanks for being here, but thank you for coming here and doing soul work on us. I really appreciate it. Yeah, um, my phone has been buzzing the whole time, so a lot of people want to hear from you. Really, I can bad. stay all night. Yeah. <laughs> um, first, what is the uh, the name of the book that you were referencing and working through, just so people can. Uh, My book? Yes.
0: Let the Nations Be Glad.
1: Okay. Everyone write that down at the top of the, of the, sermon, of the notes, uh, Let the Nations Be Glad. All right. First question. How do you explain... Uh, actually, save that one for later. <laughs> it's a good one. How does someone discern between a passion for God's glory to be known among all peoples and a calling by God, to become a missionary. So I think it's someone who can say amen to everything that you said, but am I supposed to get on the plane now? Right, right.
0: I don't think there are any formulas for discerning the particularities of a personal call in life. That could be the end of the answer right there. Um, However... I do say things to young people, especially when they ask, how do I know whether I should go? And I say, "Um, immerse yourself in the Bible. Bleed Bible if somebody pricks you. Immerse yourself in prayer, crying out to God. He promises to lead us. He does. I will lead you and guide you in the way that you should go. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way that they should go. Do you qualify? That's really encouraging. So that's the the second thing. Pour out your heart in prayer, making yourself available. Third, be a part of a church and ask the people around you to help you identify who you are. You don't find out who you are by going out into the woods and asking God to show you. You find out who you are by plugging into a local fellowship and doing what you love to do. And they'll identify what you're helpful at. They'll say, thanks for doing that. They won't say thanks for doing what you did badly, but they'll, they'll say, thanks, thanks for doing what you did well. And that'll reinforce, okay, so that would be a clue. Number four. Educate yourself about the world. Read biographies of missionaries. I'm reading Hudson Taylor right now, firing me up, stoking my engines, making me worry about my future. Like, have I got my life right here at age 67, or is there something different that I should be thinking about? I want to. I want to expose myself to the inspiration of the of the Hebrews 11 types that got the banner and all these people that didn't fail out there and they. Pressed in so I wanna I wanna read them. Um, and then pour all that in a in a bowl and stir it and when the Holy Spirit blows the smoke, follow it. Hmm. <laughs> that's my that's my charismatic. Um, which which really means I mean i was, I testify. I mean, this is real, right? This is where every one of you should be. Every one of you right now, no matter how fixed you are in your position, should be able to say, I'm willing to go anywhere, do anything. Right now, at age 67, 87, 37, 27, whatever, you should feel that way. So John Piper is 34 years old in 1979. I've taught in college for six years. I'm writing articles. My dad thinks I'm a success. My students think I'm a good teacher, and I can't stay anymore. I just can't. I can't. You asked me, yeah, but how did you know? I don't know how I knew. I just knew. I couldn't stay. So I'm up all night almost, I mean, into the wee hours, pleading with God. God, what do you want me to do? Just quit and, and look for a church or what? And the answer came back, that's probably a good idea.
1: Mm. <laughs>
0: so I asked my wife in the morning, what would you think if I quit? I just quit at Bethel and went to the denominational folks and said, help me find a church. Mm. And she said, I could see that coming. That's what you said. That's what I did. And, and as I look back, all I know is that if God wants you somewhere and you're really willing, you'll know. You'll know. It'll burn. You won't be able to escape it. It'll come. It'll you'll pass, uh, This speaker will show up here, and he'll talk like I just talked. That'll be a piece of it. Something's going to happen tomorrow. That'll be a piece of it. And along the way, you'll just you won't be able to run away from it.
1: How do you explain God's cursing or blessing certain peoples in the Old Testament if he wants the gospel to spread to all peoples. Maybe focus on the cursing part. Cursing of? Of people. So, like, the Edomites had a rough go of it. Wiping out whole whole peoples.
0: (laughs) One of my biggest unanswered questions, and I'll just throw it out, is whether or not the every in Revelation 5-9 Um, He died to ransom people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Includes peoples who die out before the gospel gets to them. And I have two—I do not know the answer to that question, but I'll give you ideas. One is, I think babies go to heaven. Child mortality among all the peoples has been huge over the years. And I've got a whole theology behind that. I believe in original sin. I believe you need to believe on Jesus to be saved. And I believe babies go to heaven. Dead babies go to heaven. That's a possible answer. May not be the right answer. A second answer is when he said he died so that there would be a ransom from every people group, he meant the ones that were alive. He he just said, "Don't, don't push me on that. You know, kind of like. Don't, don't press that. I mean, I mean the ones that are alive and have possible people there to be saved. If, they, if they've gone out of existence you know, 3,000 years before Jesus came, I'm not, I don't mean them. Um, so I'm not sure I'm getting at your question. God glorifies himself other ways than by saving sinners. He glorifies himself and his justice in hell by sending people there, or when the Amorites have filled up, filled up. You go down to Egypt, take 400 years there because the sins of the Amorites are not full. When they're full, I'm sending you there to kill them, because I will glorify my justice in people who have spurned all my general revelation and have suppressed all the knowledge that I've given them, I'm going to punish them and get great glory for myself. Which, by the way, it's really not by the way, which is part of my sentence when I said he created the world to be glorified in the I'll add now, white-hot worship of a blood-bought people from all the peoples of the world. One of the reasons that worship will be white-hot will be knowing that we didn't go to hell like they did. The punishment of God's, God's justice, sending people, some who you loved very much, to hell will serve to intensify your love for His grace and your fear of His judgment. And that's part of white-hot worship that He created the universe to
1: receive. Hell is essential to God's purposes. Last question. Will missions be victorious?
0: Yes. This gospel of the kingdom will, not maybe, will be preached. Throughout the world, as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So, yes, it cannot fail. All the nations will be reached. Our job is to make it happen yesterday. I mean, the clock is ticking. Spend yourself. This is something to do with that talk, okay? Amen.